Hello, everybody. Welcome to the workshop, Never Too Late. My name is Merle. I'm from West Hollywood. I'm a compulsive overeater and your moderator speaker for this session. And I, sh I should mention that my home group is the Westchester uh, 100-pounders on Thursday night. Okay, thank you for telling me. Is the mic on? Oh, okay. Is this better? Okay. Uh, let's, let's, let's start over. Welcome to the workshop, Never Too Late. My name is Merle from West Hollywood. I'm a compulsive overeater and the moderator speaker for this session. Before we begin, please turn off your cell phones. This workshop is being taped. Uh, any, all opinions expressed by those who share are their own and not necessarily those of OA as a whole. Um, the format of this session is a reading, two speakers, ask-it-basket questions, and sharing on the topic. A basket with paper and pencil will be circulated for you to write any questions you may have for the speakers. Please specify who the question is for. The reading is from Overeaters Anonymous, the second edition, page 93, the last paragraph. Sometimes when I stand before a group at meetings to share, I am moved by the love and openness in the faces of my fellow compulsive eaters. I ask myself, where else could I recover in the truest sense of the word with so many others trying to improve their lives spiritually, emotionally, and physically? I believe these efforts are the highest form of service to humankind. For, for love surely sends out vibrations and resonates in the waiting heart. At age 60, a new day and a new hope dawn for me. I trust I'll be good for many more years of spreading OA's good news. I will now speak for 20 or 25 uh, minutes. Is there a timer assigned to this uh, to this meeting? Does anybody want to volunteer to uh, to be the timer? There, there's some flashcards for the timer uh, right right here in the front uh, aisle seat. You're in the right place. Thank you so much. What's your name? Judith. Judith. Thank you for volunteering. My name is Merle. I am a compulsive overeater. The first time that I walked into an OA meeting was in 1977. At that time, I was a year sober in AA. I was two years off cigarettes. And my eating was out of control. And I was already weighing more than I had ever weighed before in my life. The first month that I quit smoking, I gained 30 pounds, even though I was still drinking almost two quarts of scotch a day. A year later, a judge in Beverly Hills decided I should get sober. And miraculously, that took, and I, the 12 steps began in my life, and I gained 25 pounds the first month. So I wasn't in denial. I knew I was a compulsive overeater. 
I knew this program had an answer for me just like the other program had an answer for me and was keeping me sober. But I was in massive, terrified resistance. I rigidly got nothing of the program but went on a, a fierce, self-centered diet took off 30 pounds, got a new job, new stresses, the eating was back out of control, and the 30 pounds I had taken off came back so fast, plus about 10 or 20 more, that I almost couldn't tell you if it was days, weeks, or months. And that was the beginning of a yo-yo, which a lot of you are familiar with. You lose some, you gain some, usually more, and then you lose and you gain. And I was in and I was out. And in and out and up and down for almost 17 years. All through this time, my other 12-step program was going marvelously well. I was growing. I was changing in many ways. My life was beginning to work again in ways that it hadn't. And for a large part of that almost 17 years, I justified my aversion to coming back to OA and surrendering to this program by using my other 12-step program as an excuse and saying to myself, well, it's the same 12 steps. And if you're doing them in one, uh, on one substance, it ought to work on the other one. And uh, it's, you don't need to go in uh, all these different programs. I don't know what they're doing here. And it made perfect sense to this mind. And the only flaw and the idea that it wasn't true and it didn't work. I understand today why it didn't work better than I did when I was deluding myself that it ought to. It didn't work for a very simple reason that an old-timer in AA said to me, right about the time I was coming to my first OA meeting because he was also in OA and he was a circuit speaker in both programs. He had only recently come from Minnesota where he got sober and abstinent and he had between 25 and 30 years of abstinence and sobriety at the time. He's a wonderful guy. He died uh, short, a year or two after that. His name was Bill Musser. And I loved him. And he, he said that he hears a lot of stuff about, you know, about the book and the meetings and all of this good stuff. But he said, you got to remember that going way back to the beginning, when there was only one program, Alcoholics Anonymous was working for four years before the big book was published. 
And the bottom line of what works in a 12-step program is one member talking to another for the benefit of the talker and not the talkee. It took me almost 20 years to understand that fully, but I understand it now. Because what I'm doing here right now, talking about my food addiction, talking about my struggle with my weight and my eating and my compulsion and my need for food as a drug of relief, is something I can't do in an AA meeting for a number of reasons. Number one, you're discouraged from talking about other addictions in a 12-step meeting. So food is considered an outside issue. Number two, there are a lot of practicing overeaters in an AA meeting who don't want to be confronted with the disease that they aren't seeking help for yet or right now or again. And number three, there's a lot of people who don't have the disease of compulsive overeating and just don't get it when you talk about food that their eyes just roll. And that doesn't help me. What I need when I talk about what's going on with me, what my problems are and the solutions I'm struggling with, I need to see heads nodding. I need to know that I'm talking to people that get it. That people who have had the same problem or may have it now. The people who aren't judging me. They're here to support me. This is what I get in an OA meeting. And when I'm dealing with my food, I don't get it in a 12-step meeting for another addiction. And if I want to talk about my other addictions here, this isn't the place where I'm going to get that help either. So that's why that didn't work. And it took me almost 17 years to get past that misunderstanding and that resistance and that twisted logic and finally surrender to this program which finally happened on February 6, 1993. To save you the math, I have a little over 16 years of continuous abstinence now. Well, when I made that surrender to this disease, my head had a lot to say about it's too late. I was 62 years old. I was less than three months away from 63 years old. I had very little faith that whatever it was that it was going to take for me to change the way I related to food and the way I ate was going to work. But for two years, my doctor had been warning me that if I didn't get back into OA, which he was a big champion of, my doctor at Kaiser. And if I didn't do something about my eating and my weight, which was out of control, let me pass a picture around. I almost forgot my picture. Um, this is not taken at my top weight. Thank you so much, Mike. This picture was taken almost a year before I got uh, before I got here. And I had been not only gaining weight, but I had been away from the program for a couple years. This is just the last picture that I let anybody take. 
before I got abstinent and started to lose. So for the next year after this picture was taken, where I'm already fairly round, I was eating completely out of control. And I didn't even want to weigh myself anymore because I think it was around 275 when that picture was taken. And I was terrified of going through what was for me like the sound barrier of 300 pounds. And I couldn't tell you honestly today whether I ever crashed through it or not because I was so terrified of getting there that about the time this picture was taken was about the end of the time that I was willing to weigh myself before I got back here. But my doctor's prediction that I was going to eat my way into diabetes if I didn't do something about this uh, came true, and I did. And between the time that I took the last set of blood tests that he had suggested and the time that he got the results and, uh, and we had a visit to discuss them and uh, get me into the patient uh, education program at Kaiser for Diabetics, I did get back to my first OA meeting that I date my abstinence from. And the thing that got me to do that directly was the birthday party that year, which was, I, as I, believe, I believe, was in January that year. They had a great, they had a great show, as they used to. They had wonderful shows back then. It was a particular period there of a few years when the shows were of really professional quality. They were fabulous. They had huge attendance and everybody loved them and I did too. And I decided I was so moved by that show and I enjoyed it so much that I said I, I don't, I'm tired of being apart from. I want to come back and be a part of again. And that's when I started uh, coming back to, to meetings regularly and, uh, and uh, sticking with with a program that I call abstinence. I had to begin breaking everything down into baby steps at the start for this to work for me. Because what I had done before never did work long enough to do me any good. I had practiced always a kind of perfectionism, a kind of rigidity, I had been a perfectionist all my life and I considered it one of my strongest virtues. I took enormous pride in it. And I was shocked when I discovered that my ethic of if it isn't perfect, it's worthless was not only the very core of my disease and the enemy of my recovery, but what really embarrassed me even more than that was when I suddenly realized and couldn't understand why I hadn't known this forever, when I suddenly realized that it was stupid. And it was stupid for a very simple reason that I couldn't see for 17 years. If you had asked me, uh, who do you know who's perfect? I'd have said, nobody. Nobody's perfect. I'm not an idiot. I know that nobody's perfect. But I was living in a way that made the impossible a minimum standard of acceptability and failing after failure after failure 
because I wasn't living up to it. How can you be more stupid than that? That's what I was doing. I knew that I couldn't do that anymore because I understood what the big book said about insanity, and this was also insane. It's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So if I was going to continue to define my abstinence by my food plan and rigidly insist that if I ate one peanut too many or I had the extra slice of apple, I broke my abstinence, I was going to do what I've been doing for 17 years. I was going to be writing a blueprint for failure. And that isn't what works for me. That isn't what I've been doing for the last 16 years and a couple of months. I've begun to understand, and I have to credit my wife for teaching me this. She got it 10 years before I did, and for 10 years I thought she was nuts because I didn't get it. I've understood finally that I have to recover from the disease of perfectionism in order to recover from the disease of compulsive overeating. And so I began to change. I began to be willing to accept an imperfect abstinence because I now understand that I never had a choice between my slow, crummy abstinence and a quicker, sleeker, more perfect abstinence. The only choice I've ever had is between my slow, crummy abstinence and throwing away my slow, crummy abstinence. And for 16 years and about four months and a couple of weeks, I haven't thrown it away. And one day at a time, I hope I don't. And it's not too late. And I'm 78 years old. And I've got a better life today than I've had so far. Thank you. I now have the great pleasure of introducing a dear, dear friend and an icon of this program who I love deeply, who will be our second speaker for 20 to 25 minutes, Roz. My name is Ross, and I'm such a grateful, compulsive overeater and honored to be here today. Thank you, Merle. I just love you so much. I've known Merle, well, I've known Nanette since I came into OA and have the pleasure of having Merle for a friend also. Um, okay, I'm supposed to read this. I just read it today for the first time. And, um, and it's true. When I stand before a group or meetings to share, I am moved by the love and openness in the faces of my fellow compulsive eaters. Where else could I recover in the truest sense of the word when so many others trying to improve their life, spiritually, emotionally, and physically? Okay. I crawled into these rooms on May 26, 1987, Weighing 390 pounds, with a sentence of six months to live. I'd had a heart attack and ate for another 10 years. 
I had angina, I had liver disease, my diabetes was 700, I was on insulin, I had, my blood pressure was out of sight, um, I had, there was so much wrong with me, and I wanted to die. But then when these three doctors said, you only have six months to live, and my son was in Overeaters Anonymous, I went with him to meetings, but one woman grabbed me at this little church and said, I'm taking you to 100 pounds me. And I, I just wouldn't go with her. And to this day, she's still around, but I try to stay away from her. I just wasn't, can I have water, please? I just wasn't ready yet. If it would have been Lonnie, I would have been ready. Um, really. But you know what? I had to stay home and eat some more, eat some more, till I got to my bottom where I couldn't walk anymore without taking a pill from my angina. I was cracked in a million pieces when I got here, emotionally, physically, and I was dead spiritually. I only went because the doctor said to me, you know, there's worse things than dying. And I said, what do you mean? Like having a stroke and being in your head while you're in a wheelchair and not being able to talk. I didn't talk anyways when I got here for four months, but I didn't want to live like that. You know, in a wheelchair, just all paralyzed. So I got to a Reader's Anonymous in the Marina Del Rey meeting. I got up those 12 stairs, and when I got to the top, I had to take a pill from the angina. I was a, I was a mess. A mess in my mind. I hated my being. I hated myself. And I thought it was a piece of shit, and that's what I was told all my life. I was 51 years old. Yeah, 51. I spent my whole life in morbid obesity. And all my childhood, it was about food and sneaking food, stealing money from my parents and buying food, or my mother hiding it and then finding the hiding places, or stealing from the kids' lunch at elementary school, and then being sent to the principal's office. See, my mother was a fantastic cook and baker, and she would hide it for my sister and I. I always found it. And, um, and today, I don't blame my parents for anything. Today, I have complete love and acceptance for everybody. You know, I was born a compulsive overeater. I really feel that. And um, when I got here, before, before I got here, the doctor said I had to lose weight fast. So I went to a, a Broughton Hospital in Culver City. They had um, you keep that fast, you know, that fast. And I, went to, I was going to do the liquid fast. And when I went over there, um, there was a therapist there. And she said, I have to get your doctor's permission. And the doctor wouldn't sign it because she said I could have a heart attack again. And then I, I wouldn't, um, I would die. So I went to the diabetic specialist over at Broughton. And she taught me how to do my blood sugars and stuff. And then I got outside help right away. And the outside help taught me what had happened to me and where I came from and what it taught me was to undo the wounds as a child that never healed and let all that pus go out and then let go, let God, and recover. And that's the hard work I had to do those years in program. Many of you that in this room today know that I cried all the time. But I was willing to go to any length because he... The weight came off really fast, but had I not done that work, 
I wouldn't be here today. I'd be dead. I would have started eating. As I grew in the program and did these steps over and over and did service over and over, from my first meeting, I did, uh, I was having coffee cans in my car every day because I went to three meetings a day. And I didn't talk for four months because I hated myself. It took me a long time to get some self-esteem and self-worth because I really hated myself and I thought you all hated me too. It took me a long time and little notes all over my wall, my, my bedroom and the mirrors. I'm a precious child of God. I love myself. I'm perfect just the way I am. So much work, but I was willing to do it because I wanted to live before I died. I really wanted to live before I died. And I never thought I was good enough to be in an elevator with anybody or to be in a room with anybody or to speak with anybody on the same stage, you know. And I even told somebody in this room, I go, oh, my God, you're the main speaker. I don't think I could be the 10-minute speaker. That's how I felt about myself. And all of you were there for me as I was learning how to grow up. I think I was emotionally maybe eight years old. You know, I didn't know how to do anything. And, um, and my husband joined the program a, a day after I did. And, um, and he lost 90 pounds, but he didn't work the program, but he was always there for me. And so now it's 22 years later, and I've been through many things. My mother's death, uh, losing our house in Los Angeles, Coming to um, coming to Orange County, they didn't have meetings there. They just had some how meetings, and um, and so Roseanne and Natalie kept saying to me, "You better start some meetings. You better start some meetings." And then some of these little old, older ladies told me that nobody goes out at night. Everybody goes out at night there. We have a lot of meetings. There's a lot of people. And I got restored to sanity again. <laughs> the steps are the the steps are everything to me. Everything. I practice the steps every single day. I have a lot of people I sponsor. I get to do it with them all the time. The big book, which I hardly read the first two years, I have to tell you, is everything to me. Being honest as a plate. Doing service. Talking to my friends, being with them. What I'm going to tell you is it's a we program. I didn't do it. I don't do it. It's we. God is everything to me. The person who told somebody it's a hundred pound on me my first time, oh, please don't say that word to me. Please don't say that word. G-O-D. I was going to quit the program because I couldn't hear that word. But I thought God did all these things, you know, took away my dad, left me with my mom. No, God has saved my life every day. There's many uh, death things, almost death dying, has happened to me in these years. And always, always I come to and live because God takes care of me. I'm going through a lot of stuff now. It is very hard financially. Most of all, my husband, who is so ill, and, and you know, he's like a two-year-old. But how, somehow I get to deal with it. Because God gives me the courage and the wisdom and the ability to be there and be with him like he's a two-year-old. And, and wipe his head, 
and talk to him and be compassionate, loving, and kind. Even though I go home, I get pains in my chest, I get stressed out, I can sit down and meditate and write and call a friend and cry. And I do the crying a lot. I grieve. And grieving is good for me because when I grieve, I get all that out that I haven't gone to the food. I don't go to the food anymore because that would make me not like myself. That would make me not be able to talk to you. That would make me hurt my sponsors. That wouldn't make me feel good about myself. And for somebody like me that hated herself, I would not be the woman I am today. I wouldn't feel worthy. I wouldn't be able to walk, walk the program, talk the talk, whatever that is. I couldn't. I still, and, I'm, and I have, you know, I still have diabetes, still there. I had my third pacemaker put in. I've got stuff with my arteries and all that stuff. I can't go back to the food. It'll kill me. And I have to be alive. I love my granddaughters. They are my loves in my life. I got to take care of them for 10 years before my daughter, till the little one went to um, school. You know, I love my friends. I love all of you. There's very special people in this room who've been by my side all this time. And it, it says in the big book, and there is a solution. None of us like the leveling of our pride. You know, I do. I'm willing to do any of that because I've humbled to the ground from the, what the food did to me. All those years that I, that I gave to the food, now I want to give to myself and to all of you. And if I eat or drink or take pills, I have nothing. I want to be Rosalind, this precious child of God, that God's given me this chance. I want to be there for my little granddaughters who love me and my daughter and my family. You know, I've learned so much in 22 years and I still don't know anything. I'm still learning every single day of my life. And um, what a gift it is to have this day. Every morning I get to pray and say, thank you, God, for one more day. Thank you, God, in every way. I'm ready, God, today to do your will. And some of my days are like, you know, but somehow he gives me this courage and all of your love. And when I had my accident 20 months ago, and I was very, very sick in the hospital, intensive care, um, it was my friends that were there. It was my friends that took care of me when I got home from the, the home I had to be in to get physical therapy. It was my friends that took care of me at home that stayed at night because I couldn't afford to have anybody. My friends that brought over food that took me to the doctors that took me to physical therapy. It was you. It was just God's squad and Overeaters Anonymous. That's what it was. Well, how much time do I have? That's what it was. Me, who never asked anybody for a favor. It was me that would buy presents or do something for everybody else who would like me. Because I hated myself so much that I would do anything to get people to like me. Oh, I've changed. If I want to do something for someone, it's because I want to, not because I want you to love me. It took me many years to know that I was worthy and that I could love myself. It took me many years. I want to read something right here. 
that I, I often refer to that reminds me of myself. In the big book, and there's a solution. I'm sure many of you will realize this. I mean, we'll have read this. Okay. There's a man in here who goes to the doctor and the doctor says, you have the mind of a chronic compulsive overeater. I've never seen one single case recover where that state of mind existed to the extent that it did in you. Our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed on him with a claim. He said to the doctor, is there no exception? Yes, replied the doctor, there is. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, compulsive overeaters have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. To me, these occurrences are phenomena. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements, ideas and emotions and attitudes where once the guiding forces of the lives of these women and men are suddenly cast to one side and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. In fact, I've been trying to produce some such emotional rearrangement within you. With many individuals, the methods which I employ are successful, but I've never seen anyone like you of your description recover. Upon hearing this, our friend was somewhat relieved, for he reflected, after all, he was a good person. This hope, however, was destroyed by the doctors telling him that while his spiritual convictions were very good, in his case, they did not really spell the necessary vital spiritual experience. That was me. But here's how I feel, and, I, and you're going to relate to this. I feel that I was like a subway shop, okay? And there was a little sign out in front, and it said, Open while being reconstructed. And inside of me, in my head, were these little angels. And I had to take all my old ideas, every one of my old ideas, and throw them out of me. And be ready to have God enter me with his new ideas. Everything had to be cast out. Inside of me, while I was open, were these little angels throwing out the resentment, the anger, my old attitudes, everything that I thought I knew about had to leave. And while I was open to learning this, all these little angels inside of me had to reconstruct me. It took a long time, a lot of work, a lot of willingness. But, and I still need a lot of work. But today, God has done this for me, not me. God has done this for me, which I never could have done by myself. God has closed those gates of hell and gotten to me to a heaven a place of light and joy and laughter and friends and a place of love and joy that I can laugh and love in my life no matter what's going on because I can meditate and have this life that I never thought possible at 73 and a half years old. No matter what's going on in my family, no matter what my son does, no matter what, I can have this as long as I remain absent and recovery and spread the message. Thank you very much for allowing me to share. I have, I have no idea what I said. I'm shaking. Thank you so much, Raz.
I love to hear you talk. Your experience is marvelous. We will now have ten minutes of questions from the Ask It Basket. Gaining maturity has been difficult for me because I don't want to grow up and be responsible for my feelings. How can I grow up? Anything you'd like to say about this, Roz? Yes, be willing to grow up. Why don't you come to the microphone because we're recording this and we want everything on on the tape. It hurts to grow up. <laughs> Bye. It hurts to grow up. I had to be willing to grow up because every idea I ever had didn't work because I kept going to the food in those days. I had to be willing to grow up with every area, a mesh plant, cook tendency, taking care of everybody but me. I had to grow up and listen to my sponsors. They really knew what they were talking about, even though I tried to quit one of them several times, but she just kept holding me on. Okay. She said lamb chop after I got her. She said, let's go and what should we do next? So they loved me enough to love me through all that, my um, my little episodes. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Rose. I think other people in the program look at me and expect me to be working a better program than I am after all these years. How should I handle this perception? I sometimes don't want newcomers to know that after almost 20 years, I still have to be very careful around food. I don't know. I don't know anybody that 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 couldn't identify with uh, with, with this who, who's got any time at all because I certainly I certainly want to be uh, more of a paragon of growth than I am and uh, I certainly want to look good to people and I I want to be loved and admired. Uh, It's very hard to surrender these things and to be willing to have uh, people think about you uh, what you don't want them to think. But I have to remind myself when a situation like that comes up, which it certainly does, that there's nothing I can do about it. One of the ways in which I used to try and take on all the the burdens of the world was that uh, I thought I could create results. But the change that takes place in me in this in, the, in this program is that instead of the old mo, the old stress producing mo by which I base my actions on trying to get a desired outcome or base my actions on trying to feel a certain way or to stop feeling a certain way, I've learned that I am truly powerless over creating outcomes. 
I simply don't control the universe. I'm not religious. I've never believed in God. So I'm not going to pretend to go there. But there is one fact about God that is relevant to my program every minute of every day. And that is that real or imaginary, whatever God is or isn't, it ain't me. And I get that. And I've learned that I'm responsible for those things that are within my capacity to deal with. I'm responsible for my words and I'm responsible for my actions. Period. All the rest of it is none of my business. What you think of me is none of my business. What you say to me is none of my business. What you do is none of my business. I've got enough to deal with just accepting responsibility for my own serenity and understanding that those people who I think are behaving badly and causing me problems never seem to go away. And somehow it came to me that if they shaped up, I would be perpetually screwed. Because if they shaped up, it would validate my oldest and most destructive old idea, which is that they are my problem. And that would mean that I had to be perpetually a victim of what they do and what they say and what they think. This program, little by little, day by day, minute by minute, is liberating me teaching me how I can be okay no matter what anybody else says or does or thinks. And when I'm okay, I don't need the relief that food would bring me. And I can start to grow and be comfortable in my own skin. You want us to add anything to that, God? That's a good question. You know what? I work my own program in the best way I can. In the best way my high power, my God wants me. I do the best I can. And when somebody thanks me, I tell them, I didn't do it. I didn't do this. God did this. I come full circle with God, and I know he did. The other thing is, it's very funny. When I came in here, I would go after everybody because I wanted everybody to like me because I didn't like myself. But today, I'm the woman I always wanted to be. So if you don't like me, it's okay. I sure can tell when someone doesn't like me. <laughs> and, um, you know, I don't have those perceptions. I don't think about People say, have said some really weird things to me, okay? Somehow I attract that. <laughs> you know what? I don't care either. I feel like Merle just said, it's like it's their problem. It's their business. And um, I'll help anybody. I really will. 
But if it gets to be, if that person uh, gets to be too much, I can let go today because I've attracted a lot of, uh, my sponsor Natalie used to say people are not wrapped tightly. And I used to find the ones that were unwrapped. Somehow they came to me. And today I don't want to do that anymore because I have enough you know, to do in my life. <laughs> but I, I couldn't believe she was really right. And so today I don't want that. I want a serene, calmer life that I think I deserve and have my life with. Just have a beautiful life with joy because I've got a lot of other stuff going on. So I need my life to be lighter with good people, filled with good people, not people that tell me some really bad things like last night that gave me a ride home. I don't want to do that anymore, you know. I just want to have a God-centered life with good people. Thanks. How do you stay in the moment? You want to start with that one? This is a good question. Okay. Anybody has any other questions? Boy, that's my favorite question because that's what I have to do. Because of my the money problems, because of everything, I have to stay in the moment today. I have a roof over my head. Today I'm abstinent. I don't have a car anymore. I can't have a car anymore, so I can't do that. I have a roof over my head. I'm abstinent. I'm happy, joyous, and free. I'm getting a ride over to see my husband, or someone's taking me to my doctor appointment, or I'm getting a ride, I'm getting a ride to my meetings. If I don't stay in the moment, I'll be in Tomorrowland, and I don't like that. Because even people I sponsor, they, they call me, they go, oh my God, this week I have this. How am I going to stay there when I don't like that man, or I don't like the woman? I go, hey, let's calm down, let's do a prayer. That's next Friday. Why are you doing that? That's next Friday. Let's stay in a moment. And because I've learned that, it has saved my serenity and peace. If I start thinking, how am I going to have that money that I owe the dentist or the doctors or I have to now start taking care of a lot of stuff for my husband that somebody was supposed to do to change his mind. You know, I have to do things. If I start thinking I'm not going to have that money on July 3rd, I wouldn't be here. So I have to put everything in perspective and ask God to hold that for me. I had to pray before this meeting because something happened a few minutes before the meeting. My husband called, and I had to take everything he said to me because he was really upset and put it in God's box so I could come in here as God's precious child to talk to you. I have learned how to do this. This is a precious lesson that I learned how to do so I could just be here for you guys. That's what I have to That's why I stay in the moment. I never knew how to do that. I could assure you that. <laughs> One time my husband was late coming out for work while I was eating, and I stayed in front of our house for eight and a half hours waiting for him, and then saw a free rig crash, and I knew immediately it was him. I'm going back like three, four years ago. But that's how I used to be. I don't want to ever live like that again. I, if I'm not, if I'm worrying, then I'm not doing my third step, which is turning my will and my life over to God, plus turning Him over to God, or whatever's going on. That's how I work this program today. Okay. That was a good question. Thank you. 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 Thank you
That was a good question. I think uh, I've certainly had a lot of trouble with that. But what I did when I was new in the program, I was big on writing things down, making lists. Like, my problem is thinking. And for a long time, I thought my problem was what I was thinking. Today, I understand very clearly that my problem is that I am thinking. It doesn't, I, I, if I'm thinking, then I'm listening to my head. My head has never had anything to tell me that I need to hear. That isn't where my good guidance comes from. So I, but, but things I've learned to do along the way, they're like little baby steps. Uh, learn to make a to-do list. So when I wake up in the morning, I can look at my calendar and I know where I have to be, what I have to do. And if if I'm able to do something else besides, if I'm able to catch up on the never-ending backlog of things that I seem to be getting further and further behind on, at least I know what I have to do to meet my responsibilities for the day. I may have an appointment. I may have something I have to shop for, whatever it is, you know. But I write it down the night before is my usual habit so that the next day I have today's list. And the criterion for what goes on today's list is, can this be done tomorrow without penalty? If the answer is yes, it's not on today's list. Today's list means today. And uh, most of what my acceptance of responsibility for my own serenity consists of is to be successfully doing something other than thinking. And so I always try to be doing something, the thing that's in front of me, the person that I'm with. Uh, if there's somebody speaking, I can listen. If I'm uh, in front of a movie, I can watch. If I'm reading something, I can read. And if that doesn't hold my attention, if I start going into my head, then I switch to something else. Because the only criterion that I require of myself, I give myself complete permission to do anything that will meet the number one requirement. It will successfully arrest my attention so that I'm looking away from my head instead of into it. That's, that's what I do to stay sane. I do something besides thinking. One of the things that works for me a lot now, and I couldn't do it at all in my first few years, is read. I always have at least two books going. One is on my dining table at home, and the other one is in the driver's pocket of my car. And if I'm, if I have to, if I'm waiting for a doctor's appointment, if I'm out eating by myself, uh, any place where there's an opportunity to think, out comes the book to take my attention so that I'll be okay. That, that's what I do. We're out of questions. Uh, let me see what the next thing is on the schedule here. Uh, we will now have open uh, sharing. Uh, we will now have time. We'll have time for three shares. I don't see how this quite equates to the time. But uh, if you have already shared at another workshop, please give others a chance before you come forward. 
limit your share to three minutes, stay on the topic, and sign the tape release form after you share. We do need your signature uh, for permission to uh, to leave you on the tape. It is uh, who wants to uh, who wants to share. If nobody wants to share, does anybody else have any more questions? Uh, we ran out of questions in the ask it basket, and uh, if you want, if you want to ask a question, we can we can do that. I, I could share, but I shared it in another meeting. Is there anyone else who wants to share? Well, that's all right. Uh, you're giving uh, them a chance to go first, and that's all anybody can ask. So come on up and share. Judith, I'm a compulsive overeater, and um, gosh, I wanted to share because I related so directly to the story of coming in and going out and coming in and going out and going up and going down, and um, my story on that is I first came in in 1979, the beginning of October. I remember my sobriety date was October 15, 79. I do not remember the first day uh, that I walked into an OA meeting, but there's somebody in the room who might have been at that meeting. Um, and what happened for me was I monitored a food sign very closely. I had what I thought was abstinence, although I remember somebody who listened in on a call to my sponsor who said to me, I had no idea you were so afraid of food, frightened of food. And uh, the way I look at it in retrospect was I had a higher power. I had two. One was Gilby's Gin and one was Sara Lee Cheesecake. Um, those were my higher powers. But what happened was um, 82, well, summer of 81 to spring of 82, several people who were very close and dear to me died. Uh, one of whom was my OA sponsor. She died in December of 81. Now, the irony is she died in a diabetic coma after, so I heard, uh, eating a bag of jelly beans. And I went out and started eating again. Uh, and I did not choose to drink, but I chose to eat uh, over something that you would think would strengthen my resolve to stay abstinent. And then I did the same in and out. And every time I came back to an OA meeting, there were people there who said, welcome, we're glad you're here. We love you. And I said, nice to see you, stayed a while and left. Um, the turnaround for me was 95. July 95, I was in Sacramento. I was sitting in, dare I say it, a Weight Watchers meeting. And I heard a woman talking about taking a candy bar and breaking it up and having one little piece each day. And I said, no way in hell or on God's green earth. And July 22nd, 95, I got myself back to OA up there. 
there was one other person in the room that day, uh, and she wasn't even the regular secretary. A regular secretary couldn't make it. Uh, the two of us started saying the serenity prayer, and I started to cry. Um, tears of happiness, because I knew I was home, and I never needed to leave again. From that day to this, I have never left again. And that's the strength I get from coming into this room and being with my family. This is like a family reunion. This is a family reunion. And I was so grateful to hear your stories of surrender and of commitment. And staying in the now, yeah, today is what I've got. This minute is what I've got. And as my first sponsor used to say at the end of every one of her shares, thank you for paying a 12-step call on me. Thanks. Anybody else want to share? Come on up. My name is Gail, and I'm a compulsive overeater. And uh, these stories have inspired me to take this opportunity to share a little bit of mine because that's a good way for me to say that uh, the miracle can still happen. Um, but that's not quite the name of this workshop. Never too late. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful name for uh, this workshop. And um, I was more than uh, 50 when I came into this program, and I had actually given up. Uh, you know, I said, uh, listen, I have a, I've given up on trying to lose weight. I said, you know, we have a reasonably secure economic life. I have a husband who loves me. I have two children who aren't any worse than most people's children. And, and uh, why do I let this weight thing be such a big deal in my life, that I, I had a religious faith that said that I believed that God loved me no matter what. And, uh, you know, why was I letting this problem overwhelm me if, if it wasn't a big deal for God? And uh, so it was uh, quite a surprise to me then when uh, I seemed to get a nudge from God saying, listen, uh, you know, pay attention. And uh, the way that happened is that uh, I had been in the program briefly and then dropped out of the program. And uh, uh, at some point I was uh, having this conversation with God about uh, how I, I could continue to grow in my spiritual and emotional life. And uh, in the course of one week, Three people spoke to me about the importance of 12-step programs in their life. One of them was an OA, but the other were other 12-step programs. And since I had been in a program before for a few years and lost some weight, but didn't uh, work the other parts of the program, then, you know, I could at least hear God's voice at that point saying, go to a 12, go to the Overeaters Anonymous. And uh, so I'm, 
so grateful today that, uh, that I could do that, that there were Overeaters Anonymous programs quite near where I lived, and uh, that I could hear that voice and, and uh, respond to it. Uh, I feel uh, uh, that it's, you know, sort of a miracle that this change could have come in my life after age 50, you know. But, of course, it, kept, it took that giving up and that surrender and saying, okay, I'm not capable, I'm not self-confident, I'm not the competent, capable person that I think I should be, I'm not in control, and all of those things that um, even by that point in my life, then they still weren't helping me to manage life. And uh, now one of the things that I'm most grateful for then is that this program uh, encourages me to lead a sane and useful life. And if I can do that one day at a time, then I think that's a wonderful miracle at age almost 72 years old. Thank you. Anyone else? We need you to come up on the mic uh, so that you can be on the uh, page. Wait till you get, wait till you're on the mic so, for the page. <laughs> Okay. Hi, I'm Jana. I'm a compulsive overeater for sure. And um, I came here uh, really wanting to hear two people in particular, and I didn't plan which rooms I went into and heard both of them. Isn't that interesting? That's a coincidence, a guy remaining anonymous, I think. Anyway, um, I'd like to ask a question, and I'm interested in hearing Roz share if she would about starting meetings in an area where there aren't too many meetings. Okay. Well, I moved out to Orange County because um, due to a lot of um, really hard things, we lost our house and everything. And my husband's business. So um, my sister Gail brought um, condo in Orange County in Laguna Niguel. So we moved out there and another person in program, which I saw her today, told me not to because there was no meetings because she moved back to L.A. And, um, and she was an old-timer. She said, you're going to be so miserable there. You're going to lose your program. You're going to lose your accent. She was miserable in Orange County. So, um, but we already had done it. We moved to Laguna Niguel and there were no meetings. There was a couple morning meetings, how meetings, and I wasn't in how. And then, um, and then I found a meeting in Costa Mesa. So uh, I went to the two how meetings, and um, not that there's anything wrong with how, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't. Because my, my sponsor was out in L.A., and, um, and all my friends were there, and I was a mess. I was. And so I kept going back and forth every weekend to L.A. for the weekend. And finally, uh, Roseanne and Natalie and my 
my sponsor, Kathy Pagoda, said, you're so miserable, if you don't start a meeting, you're going to be in complete relapse. So it took me seven months. The reason I didn't start it was, <laughs> there was a few people in the morning meetings at How that said, don't you start a meeting, none of us go out at night, we don't go out at night, and guess what? I believed them. So, <laughs> I was intimidated. Um, so, a couple of the people from the house were OA people, and they helped me make flyers. So I started the first meeting, which Natalie came out, and she was the first speaker. And then a, a month later, we started another meeting, and then another meeting. And I think nine years ago, we started a big Sunday night, 100-pounder meeting. And that is filled, like 56 people. And now we have a meeting every single night of the week, and then there's one on Sunday morning, there's one on Saturday morning, and that's how you started. All I did with this 100-pound ring, I got the script from Lonnie from the Thursday night. You know, it was easy, and it was wonderful. And the first meeting we had on, the, on our, just a regular OA meeting, was, the first meeting was about 15 people. And they all the meetings kept growing. Sharon and I just started a Tuesday night. Just, um, just every week we do a different book. I mean, it is phenomenal. We have a different kind every night. It's phenomenal, and everybody comes from everywhere. We're talking everywhere in Orange County, Anaheim Hills, all places you never think. And everybody loves them. That's how you start meeting. I did it to save my house, you know? I didn't think anybody was going to come as far as the other people told me. You know what? I trusted God. I've learned how to trust. Everybody shows up now, and it's taking up positions, and now there's a lot of men, and there's meetings all over now. It's just a wonderful thing to be able to do that. Now somebody I knew moved to Indiana, and I sent her some tapes, and now she's starting a meeting. It's just so wonderful to carry the message to everybody. Starting a meeting is not a hard thing at all. So thanks. Anybody else? We have a few minutes left. Anybody have a question or a share? Don't walk out leaving it unsaid. Some of us may need to hear it. Okay. Hi, my name is Sharon. I'm a food addict, compulsive old reader. I just turned 70 one week ago. I hate the number. I can't believe it. But when I came into the program half my life ago, I was in my 30s, and I'm still here. And I like to say I'm a lifer because I plan to never leave. I've been everywhere in this program. I've been abstinent. I've been not abstinent. I've been a relapse. I've been in very strong abstinence, which I happen to be in right now. I've been in good places, and I've been in lousy places in my life, and I keep coming back. And that's, that's my message to, today, because, I mean, if, if you want to hear my message, my message is that as long as I keep coming to the rooms, 
practicing the 12 steps, trusting in God and doing the footwork, I feel good about myself. And there really isn't much more for me to say right now because, you know, I, I was telling somebody before that when I, I've been in program in three states, obviously, all these years I've lived in different places. And in Florida, I lived in Boynton Beach, and I used to go to a meeting in Delray Beach, which is like 98% people over 75. And there was a lady in the meeting with me. I can't even remember her name now. It'll come to me. But anyway, she was about 85, and she used to say, I'm going to be coming to meetings till I'm 125, and Sharon's going to be right next to me. And you know what? That's true, because I am a lifer. I mean... I I feel like I have grown up in this program. I have found God in this program. I learned how to raise my kids in this program. And even though I wasn't always exactly abstinent, you know, I've been through periods of ups and downs in terms of abstinence and whatever. But I have learned how to grow up in this program. So I was in another room where somebody asked something about growing up. Or was it in this room? You know what? I grew up in this program, and I am so grateful that I've had the opportunity to do that. Because I know a lot of people my age, this is what we're talking about, is it's never too late, right? I know a lot of people in my age who don't get it. They just don't get it, and I feel that this being here all these years has given me the opportunity to get aside from the opportunity to learn how to take care of myself to love other people to love myself to um just just to be and to and and to be a grown-up so i'm a grown-up that's all we got time for one more come on up here I'm Marion, a compulsive overeater. And, um, I started coming to recovery when I was about 24 years old. And um, I actually led a panel when OA was 25 years old at the uh, Disneyland Hotel. So I've been around a while. I stayed pretty much in my own area. So I, I recognize some of your faces, but I don't usually come to a lot of out-of-my-own-area stuff. But I think what I want to share with you, I don't know, I... Uh, when I saw senior citizens, I, I'm a professional, I'm a social worker, and I work with seniors. And last year I turned 65. And, uh, you know, three months before Medicare starts sending all that stuff. And, uh, oh, my God, I've been serving them, and now I'm one of them. <laughs> and I went through a real depression because I did not, I was really shocked to find that out. Um, the program has it's totally changed my life. It just has had. I am so grateful for the years. The program works. I mean, it just says my bottom weight was 275. I'm grateful I'm not that. I'm one of those that do struggle with the abstinence thing. I don't know. Talked about immaturity. I'm very immature. People point that out to me. I'm very childlike. I don't know if that's such a bad thing. And it doesn't even matter. I get the gift of a lot of stuff because I'm in recovery. I have a 42-year-old marriage. Old marriage, yeah. And uh, I was going to leave him a long time ago after I came in recovery with three young children. If I'm going to go, I'm going to do it right. Uh, 
I came in the program going to three meetings a day. And then, you know, when your family says, go to a meeting, they're only little kids. You're leaving, Mom? I mean, you know, there's a real problem there. And, and one of you mentioned about your mom. I mean, I, I, I walked away from my mom for three years, and that was the best I could do. And then people, uh, the women in the program said, you know, you need to, to find some balance with your mother because she gave you life, honey. You wouldn't be here. I mean, there, there are things that I've, I've grown up about, and I have an incredible relationship with her today, which is amazing. My mom will never be the mom I want because I have a real fantasy, magical thinking. And, uh, but she's a good mom. She's 84 years old, and, and, I'm, and I'm grateful I got to make uh, a relationship with her because I, I deal with women who don't. And I like what Ross says, I get some of the most strange people to me, and I think, why are they attracted to me until they start talking to me? And then I know why. And one, day, one speaker day, God, she's my clone. And I keep coming back because this is the only place I've ever gotten any stability from what. And we believe now, you know, in psychology that you spend the rest of your life overcoming your childhood, and I believe that's absolutely true. So God's grace is when things come up, I get to work on it and do the best I can today, and I know that. You know, and it's always about all the stuff that we all talk about and we're aware of. And it's one day at a time. Staying in the now. You know, somebody calls me up Friday afternoon or Saturday, Saturday, hysterical about whatever. And it's like, you know, this is Saturday. There's nothing you can do it on a Saturday. Enjoy the day. Monday you can worry about it. You know, postpone that insanity that we all get into. So I have a lot of great gratitude, a lot of good skills, a lot of, a lot of things that happen now. I don't know. There's so many miracles that are just unbelievable. Never would have happened if the program hadn't come into my life. And I have no idea why I stayed because that's not. I'm a a very hyper personality. I wear many hats with what I do for a living. And um, but I but this is what I know is the base, and it's God based. It's it's amazing. And I I my heart breaks for people that leave. And then you see them in the store and they run the other way, (laughs) you know, or they put on another 100 pounds and it's just so hard. Or or somebody will say to me, oh, you're still going there? Well, yeah, where else am I supposed to go? So thank you. It is now time to close this workshop. Please join me in a moment of silence. Uh, followed by the serenity prayer. We'll come down and hold hands. And thank you all very much for being here. Thank you, Merle. Thank you, Merle. Thank you, Merle.